Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod from housing to public safety and new party in the house, the fall legislative session began today. We'll have the latest with Keith Baldry. Plus fear of the banker, Canadians brace for higher payments as they get closer to their mortgage renewal. And forget Alberta calling, Calgary police want you. Even as police forces in BC desperate look to hire more officers, we look at why Cowtown's police force has launched a recruitment drive in BC. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk the fall legislative session in Victoria. Now, over the next two months, the provincial government will introduce housing legislation that aims to address persistent permitting and zoning challenges. They also want to focus on allowing secondary and basement suites in every community in BC. They also want to strengthen the enforcement on short-term rentals like Airbnb. That's legislation I think we're all waiting to hear more upon. And, of course, they want to speed up municipal and provincial permitting to reduce costs, remove unnecessary delays and deliver more homes faster. They also want to bring in legislation that will uh, update international credentialing. So those are the kind of things that you can expect over the next couple of months. But today, the news of the day was the fact the fall session started with four official parties, as the B.C. Conservatives now have official party status. Their leader, John Rusted, uh, rose in the House and asked the following question of the government. Take a listen minority communities have been protesting against OG123, which was originally introduced by the BC United Liberals. Parents are concerned about the sexualization of their children in this NDP government's education system. Will the minister admit that OG123 has been divisive, an assault on parents' rights, and a distraction on student education? To, to come into this place, to use the authority of his office, to leverage all of that to make them feel less safe at school, it is not welcome. It is outrageous that he would stand here and do this. He sees political advantage in picking on kids and families and teachers and schools who are just trying to do their best for kids who are at risk of suicide. Honorable Chair, shame on him. Choose another question. That was Premier David Eby uh, responding to John Rustad, the leader of the BC Conservatives. All right, a very prickly issue uh, and, of course, a divisive issue. But that was question number one. Joining me now to talk about what transpired today and make sense of it all is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, welcome. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Uh, first question, uh, the Premier obviously responded uh, as he was quite disgusted by that question as uh, Mr. Rusted focused on. Soji, walk me through what you saw at the legislature today. Yeah, so the question period began with the BC United Party being the official opposition, having the first few questions, and they focused on housing. No new ground broken. Uh, it sounded like a question period that could have been back in 2016 when the NDP was in opposition asking questions of the then BC Liberal government on the unsolvable crisis of housing. Then Sonia Furston on the Greens asked about wildfires. And then Rustad stood up and asked the question you just, so that was the first question. It was an anti-Soji question. EB responded as he just played it, uh, very upset. And then uh, Rustad asked it again, and EB again tore a new strip off him. And that's when things got very interesting. And you don't pick this up on Hanser television, because when, when all heck breaks loose, as you know, mm-hmm. Hanser cameras just cut to the speaker's chair, and you don't see what's going on. So I was sitting up right above the opposition members, and EB was launching into denouncing um, Rustad for this attack on Soji and getting quite animated. And suddenly I noticed that on the BC United side, two MLAs, notably Eleanor Sturko and Karen Kirkpatrick from West Van, both started pounding their tables in support and nodding their heads. That's when the NDP started to get 
sort of whipping themselves into support. And then something unusual happened. I've never seen, well, I can't remember the last time I saw an opposition stand up and give a standing ovation to a premier on a political issue. You can see that on, you know, very motherhood issues, commemoration days, that type of thing. But this was a political issue, red hot. And you had the BC United Caucus and the Greens stand up with the NDP and applaud the uh, the government and applaud Premier Yee. It was led at the beginning by two BC United MLA, Sturkel and Kirkpatrick. What was also noticeable as the standing ovation continued, three BC MLAs noticeably sat on their hands and refused to stand up. And that was Ben Stewart from the Okanagan, Tom Shapika from the Kootenays, and Alice Ross from Skeena. I talked to Stewart later. He said, well, he still has some question, unanswered questions about Soji. He's not comfortable with that. But I thought, okay, we had talked before about the dynamics that we would see in the House. And the dynamic that was on display today was fascinating and almost unprecedented, where you had the opposition siding with the government in a very visible and loud display of support, yet some members of the, car, of the opposition clearly did not share the same views. And it exposed, I think, what we're going to see over the next seven weeks, the occasional tension between the B.C. Conservatives and the B.C. United, as we speculated before, where there's some cross-pollination between these two sides as they fight over the same pool of voters. And issues like Soji and a few others could drive a wedge in between some of the members of the House on either side. So in this case, with Stewart, Chipitka, and Ross not getting up, uh, does that speak to, and, and, and the uh, the other MLAs like uh, Eleanor Sturko, Corinne Kirkpatrick, getting up and their other colleagues joining, so does this speak to uh, some rifts within the BC United Caucus as well? Well, I'm sure there's speculation. I, did, I have no knowledge of that. I mean, I did not talk to Shapika or Ellis about this. Um, just It was just noticeable. Given the din, what was happening in the House, everyone watching what everyone was doing, those three remained in their seats, as did the two Conservative members uh, remain in their seats, refusing to acknowledge that EB had a point. As you say, this is a very divisive issue, or it can be. It's uh, being exploited, I think, by Rustad. A lot of people are criticizing him quite strongly, saying this is ridiculous, very cynical. Uh, to not only attack Soji, but to somehow equate it with the residential school uh, uh, disaster. Uh, so he's been criticized, but he's not shying away from this. So what's interesting, post-question period, mm-hmm. uh, all the opposition parties are constantly looking to say, well, pick me for the scrum. Well, the person who was scrummed by the media, it was a very large scrum, was John Rustad. Uh, question period is about getting attention. Well, Rustad's chief goal right now as the leader of this fledgling party is to get attention. He got attention today. You could argue for all the wrong reasons, but I think he's going to argue back, no, I got attention. I'm raising an issue. Probably that's speaking more effectively up-country, considering those three MLAs who did not stand up to give an ovation all represent interior or northern ridings. Um, I think this is a calculated, some can call it cynical ploy by Rustad, but it's one that seemed to at least get him the lion's share of the attention today and just sort of magnify the that not everyone in the BC United Caucus is on the same page on this. Keith, you know, when I was in, in, in that, when it was referred to as the BC Liberal Caucus, Rustad was rarely used because, quite frankly, he wasn't very good at question period, which requires a cut and thrust, the ability to think on your feet, not, not his strength. But I, one could argue, uh, judging by the attention he got today, and perhaps he'll get the same attention, I don't know, but his job isn't really to build a party that's going to win many, many seats. It almost seems like he just wants to speak to his core voter, which would impact 
It would take enough votes from the BC United next election. This isn't about winning any election or getting 15, 20 MLAs elected, is it? Well, I think it's, yeah, he told me he thinks they can be, this is some time ago before this bounce in the polls. He thought hmm. they could be competitive to win in 15 ridings. Looking at the polls now, I'd say that number might be a little north of that. But in terms of forming the government, yeah, I mean, you could take a look at the, the voting results the last few elections. The BC Conservatives have not been a factor in BC politics for you have to go back to the 30s, 40s. I mean, this is not a party that's a force. But it can play a role in splitting the vote or taking enough votes in some, some certain areas to allow a party that's diametrically the opposite in terms of ideology to win, which in this case would be the NDP. I think Rustad's hell-bent on basically exacting some revenge on the BC United Party for kicking him out. And he's launched onto what appears to be a very convenient vehicle, the BC Conservatives. And now that he's got another disaffected BC United member, Bruce Banman, to join him. Um, and then you've got those three MLAs just not wanting to participate with their caucus colleagues in, in thanking or supporting Soji. Uh, something's going on in that house that we haven't seen for some time. And I'm not sure exactly what Rustad's end game is. You know, you take a dry, dispassionate look at voting results and think you haven't got a hope of forming government. But they could certainly play a key role in the next election in terms of determining the size of an NDP government because uh, they can, you know, we look at where conservatives are strong federally. That's pretty well everywhere outside of Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And they could be very competitive with the BC United Party there to the point of either winning the seat or denying the victory to the BC United. So this is a fascinating situation we have unfolding in the BC legislature, of which we haven't seen in decades. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We were talking about uh, the fall legislative session began today. Fireworks, actually, as uh, John Rustad, the BC Conservative leader, arose in the House and asked a question on Soji. And, of course, Premier David Eby certainly didn't appreciate that question. Now, Keith, uh, obviously you talked about the rift between um, the BC United and the Conservatives. Uh, has there been any talk of anybody else joining uh, Mr. Rustad uh, after Mr. Bandman already um, uh, joined? Well, there's going to be speculation. There always is. Once one person defects, will there be others? But nothing, no evidence, you know, no uh I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, but I wouldn't rule it in. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big decision for an MLA to leave a caucus. Um, but it has happened. I've seen a lot of floor crossers my time over here. Uh, we've had some very famous instances. W.A.C. Bennett, for example, crossed from the Conservatives, joined the Social Credit Party and created a political dynasty. Uh, Winston Churchill was a famous floor crosser. We had the most, in B.C. political history, the most famous was in the 1970s when Bill Bennett convinced a progressive conservative MLA, um, Hugh Curtis, who represented Saanich over here, and several then-BC liberal MLAs, Pat McGeer, Alan Williams, Gardy Gardam, uh, to cross over to the Social Credit Party and put together the reestablish what was called the Free Enterprise Coalition that fell apart in W.A.C. Bennett's last uh, year. Uh, Bennett put it together. Uh, it fell apart again in 91, which led to the emergence of the B.C. Liberal Party, uh, but now one can question, are we seeing this again? Are we seeing the the disintegration of the free enterprise coalition? And what can it be rebuilt? Can it be rebuilt under the current situation, or does it even another party emerge out of this? But I'll tell you, when these two parties are each potentially at each other's throats, and I invite, if you want to see some, some anger, go on Twitter and look at the Twitter exchange between Eleanor Sturko 
and Bruce Banman, the MLA who left the BC United Caucus to sit with the Conservatives. I mean, he, Banman mocking Sturco last night, saying, your party's done, Eleanor. And like, whoa, okay, you guys want to <laughs> it's fight personal. like that? It is so it's personal. It's personal, and it's in public. And it's um, having seen caucus meltdowns before and internecine fighting, I'm low to predict what's going to happen next. I mean, Falcon had an event here today with most of his caucus in attendance talking about how they recruited the mayor of, of Houston to run against uh, John Rustad in the next election. So that they consider that person to be a star candidate. And certainly if you're elected mayor of a town like that, you've got to be considered any mayor would be a star candidate. But I think it's, uh, again, they seem to be reacting to Rustad. So they trotted out a candidate that they are now appointed to run against Rustad. They're responding to Rustad and his, his party on, on social media. Um, and it's just going to be interesting what the session brings. So we sort of go into a bit of a slowdown now. Today was, you know, sort of a test drive. Tomorrow, there's the funeral for the slain RCMP officer, O'Brien. That's going to take the, t- the temperature down at this place because many of the people here will be in attendance at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Thursday is sort of a low-key day with regional focus, not a big day. And then they take a week off for the Thanksgiving break. So it doesn't really get going until another week and a half. And we'll see what that brings. Um, but I'll tell you, it's, it's a lively, a li- it was a lively QP today with some machinations and some dynamics we haven't seen for quite a long time. I got 30 seconds here, Keith. Uh, still expecting a fall 2024 election, or do you think the NDP could potentially pull, pull, pull the trigger early? Oh, I think there's always the possibility that the spring is a window for them to go. But I think EB, I still get the impression these guys like being in government. They don't they don't want to give up six months needlessly if they don't have to. Uh, so I still think the fall of 2024. And, you know, if your two if your two enemies are at each other's throats, let them go at it for a while. Exactly. Step back and and just watch. Keith, thank you. All right. Take care. Welcome back to the show. Before we uh, begin our next segment, I want to say congratulations to Nancy from Burnaby for being today's winner for a $100 gift card to Nestor's Food Market as part of our Thanksgiving giveaway. Tune in tomorrow for your next chance to win. So congratulations to Nancy. And $100 does go far, and a lot of folks do need to help these days. You can't blame them. The Bank of Canada has raised interest rates to their highest level in 22 years, and many more still but haven't been hit by the pocket, haven't been hit in the pocketbook, um, which is quite amazing, but approximately half of all mortgages in Canada are set to renew in 2025 to 2026, but some are already feeling the pinch. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the impact of rising rates is Ron Butler, mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages. Ron, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So I I love chatting with you. Uh, You deal with uh, so many people on a regular basis. What are you hearing right now in regards to where we're at in Canada with these interest rates that have gone up, but particularly at the consumer side? What do you you see and what do you hear? Well, what we're experiencing is a profound level of worry and concern about upcoming renewals. Uh, Today, bond yields uh, hit a point uh, unseen for about 22 years. Uh, these bond yields drive mortgage rates in Canada. And we look to have another quarter percent increase over the next several days uh, throughout the country on fixed mortgage rates of all types, right from one year to 10 year. And uh, that will set the stage for still higher rates experienced on renewal uh, in November. Uh, And so whereabouts are they right now? Let's say for a five-year fixed, what, what would you get right now? 
Well, at the very, very lowest point for CMHC insured uh, five-year fixed rate mortgage, you'd be looking at something around uh, five, six something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is now going to jump into the five nines. But for almost everyone else, considering a not an insured mortgage, not a low down payment mortgage, all these rates are in the sixes. Uh, and we're going to look at some two and three year rates that might break into the sevens next week. Wow. Oh, my God. Um, can this get any worse? I mean, do you think there's going to be another rate increase, or do you think this is it right now with what we're at? Well, that's a tough question because the inflation danger is still present. Um, we're going to have to see another couple of inflation reports in the coming weeks and months. It's not out of the question. Another, it may not be this announcement coming in October, mm-hmm. but it's not out of the question. We could see one before the end of this year, another 25 basis point, one quarter percent increase. Uh, I mean, at what point, what, what, where is the breaking point in your mind? Or are we just already there? I mean, we, on shows like this, you get a lot of folks calling frustrated and, and you don't blame people that are being frustrated, but what is the, the tipping point in regards to, I'm not saying pitchforks at, at Parliament Hill, but we're, from what I sense, we're getting pretty close. There may be a few tiki torches going up soon. That's possible. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the reality is, you know, when we're talking about mortgage rates in the sevens, here is a consideration. The stress test means that they are qualified in the 9% range. Let's face it. For the price of homes in the lower mainland and most of British Columbia and certainly all of southwestern Ontario, there's no, there's no possibility of anybody buying a home qualified in the 9% range. Maybe a few millionaires, but... We are reaching the point where no one is going to qualify for a bank mortgage in these expensive areas. So what's next here? Is it just a case of just keep your fingers crossed and that's about all you can do at the moment? Yeah, some of this stuff is way out of our hands. Uh, There's talk in the United States about the fact that it's just becoming harder and harder to get buyers for these treasuries. Don't get me wrong, the, the, the... uh, Federal Reserve can buy their own treasuries if they wish, but they've particularly moved a- away from that, and they're involved in quantitative tightening instead of quantitative easing. So we're sort of seeing the hangover of wild monetary policy for a number of years, uh, but particularly during COVID. And now uh, the chickens have come home to roost, and there's actually talk of difficulty finding placings, particularly for Canadian bonds, for finding these placings. I mean, it, it just drives the, the, the rates, the, the yields higher and higher, and that drives the mortgage rates higher and higher on the fixed rate side. We were just hearing of a, a local story yesterday here in Vancouver where a homeowner decided to sell their house, which they did, because they felt it was easier. On, they, they had the house, they were paying the mortgages, but uh, the mortgage, but it was just so high that it's better to sell the house and just rent, uh, which is just shocking. Well, it's shocking because rent uh, rates have gone up so substantially, both in British Columbia and, and Alberta's through the roof, too. I mean, uh, God bless them. They've got a great housing market in Alberta. But some, I think in the city of Calgary, their starting rents have gone up 40% in 18 months. Um, so it's hard on everyone. Rent is, rental is not a, an easy option anymore. It's very expensive. Uh, is your, are folks in your business kind of like the Maytag repairman right now, <laughs> waiting for someone to call? I mean, is it pretty quiet? It's so quiet. I mean, it's like a tomb. Uh, the the reality is that other than uh, people interested in trying to find uh, a better renewal rate when their their mortgage is up for renewal, 
no one is considering, um, you know, refinance unless you'd absolutely had to. It's like this. In the United States, people who got their mortgage two years ago have a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage at about 299 to 349 Nobody's moving. Nobody's even moving because if you move in the States, you lose that rate. So, um, yeah, there's just no activity. And I think we're going to start to see greatly reduced real estate activity in, uh, in Canada as well. Um, when does this, this get better in your mind? It gets better when the rates come down. Uh, it gets better when uh, the Bank of Canada looks like they are moving towards cuts. And at that point, fixed rates will, should fall dramatically as bond yields dip. Uh, but right now, there's no sign of that in the horizon, the immediate horizon. Yeah. Ron, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate that. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you know, generally uh, on CKNW, when we're talking about um, police hiring, it's usually uh, in and around uh, the Surrey Police Service or the whole controversy around Surrey policing as they make that transition from RCMP to a municipal police force. But on top of that, you also have just generally retirements and, and the region is always looking for more police officers. It's a constant challenge made even more challenging now with uh, uh, the Surrey Police Service uh, uh, recruiting and hiring. And of course, across this province, uh, the provincial government has put extra dollars in to make sure uh, we can fill all those empty spots that are in many smaller uh, RCMP detachments across the province, well over 200 plus. Well, add to that, the Calgary Police Service wants to hire uh, many folks uh, in this city and convince them to move to Calgary. We were just talking about how expensive and and challenging it is with the high uh, interest rate environment right now. Add to that a one-bedroom apartment um, in Vancouver, rents for about $3,000 per month. Joining me now is Constable Andy Buck. He's a recruiting officer for the Calgary Police Service. Constable Buck, thank you for joining us. Uh, good evening, uh, Jess. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. First and foremost, uh, I understand you were in New Westminster today, I believe, for a career fair? That's correct. Uh, Career Fair Canada, we're putting on a a career fair there at the Anvil Centre. We do quite a lot of work with Career Fair Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we we were pleased to attend that. It was incredibly busy. Uh, Spoke to many, many people. Uh, Very productive. For sure. Uh, And I think you're holding another uh, event. Is it tonight in Surrey? Yes, we're at the, uh, the Civic Hotel in Surrey, where we're putting on an in-person information session. It's really just an extended um, uh, giving of information that we would perhaps have been limited to just a couple of minutes with people at the career fair. Mm-hmm. Why? And, and, and it's not the fact that you're just here, but you've been advertising on this station, CKNW, trying to convince folks to look at uh, the Calgary Police Service uh, and uh, as, a, as a, a career. Why did you focus on Vancouver? Well, it's it's interesting sort of listening to the terminology there about trying to convince. The reality is, Jazz, that um, we probably have 15 to 20% of our applicants are already coming from the BC area. Hmm. So there is that desire for people who probably have already made that decision that that's where they want to go. Or for the most part, based upon you know recent conversations, we're speaking to people 
who previously have lived in Alberta or have family in, in and around the Calgary area. So in some respects, it's like going home for them. They're familiar with, with what Calgary has to offer. Um, and it's a case of us providing them with the information that we have about the current opportunities and for them to then just make their own minds up. Um I mean, do you? I mean, do you, one of the sales points has to be, hey, look, uh, you know, Calgary's not uh, exactly cheap, but is cheaper than Vancouver. I mean, do you? You must focus on that a little bit in regards to housing costs and rent rent as well. That for sure is is a fact, and is probably a driving factor for a number of people. Um, just based on some of the conversations today, you know, people were telling me that cost of living is what is um, driving them to to look outside of BC. Um, You know, it was quite staggering just to hear on your introduction there about um, average rents in in Vancouver for a one-bedroom place at being $3,000. The facts are the facts, and it it is expensive. And uh, Calgary, um, depending upon what you're comparing it to, is, is less expensive than that. I'm just looking at uh, numbers here before me. I mean, uh, we had the former Premier Jason Kenney from Alberta on this show when they began the Alberta Calling uh, ad campaign, including on this station as well. Uh, I mean, Alberta, in the last year, uh, from what I've been looking at, it's just the – it's a Canadian record. They set in, I guess, 2022-2023 in regards to net – interprovincial population growth. It has been significant. I think it's close to 180,000 people have moved to Alberta between July of 2022 to July 1 of 2023, which is the fastest year-over-year demographic growth of all provinces and territories, which is just over 4%. That means that there's a boost of 184,000 people. Um, I'm very curious, what would people do? Let's say they, they decide to apply and they have... Um, the the talents uh, and they do get into the Canada uh, the Calgary Police Force. What's yeah. sort of the salary skill that you're offering? Uh, well, at the minute, for uh, um, successful applicants uh, with no policing experience, they would start at just over seventy three thousand mm-hmm. dollars as a as a starting salary. That does go up incrementally each year um, for the first four years, and of course. Let's not forget that's just a base salary and wouldn't include any uh, worked overtime or uh, working on statutory holidays, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And after five years, what would the salary go up to if the person is doing good work and, and progressing to their career? Yeah, again, as a base salary, that would currently be just a, a hair over $113,000, um, but plenty of opportunity to supplement that. So you're starting at just around 70000 and five years later you're at 113000 And that, I'm, I'm going to assume, uh, health benefits, of course, and, a, and, a, and um, your usual 25 years of service. There's a pension plan there as well. That's correct. Yeah, the benefits um, and pension with the Calgary Police Service is going to be comparable to, to any other policing agency for sure. Um, how um, how much how much energy does your department need to put into recruiting? Uh, because I mean, you, Calgary, Alberta is growing as I just saw as I said with those numbers. Uh, there must be a constant need for recruiting, and it seems to be you're growing at such a an exponential rate. 
I think our growth is tied to the growth of the city. Um, I don't know what the ratio is, but we're mandated to have a certain number of police officers per capita. And I know uh, all around the city there are new housing developments that are springing up. Um, People are wanting to move to the city. And as the city grows, then, of course, we need to grow too. Mm -hmm. Um, So that creates uh, a lot of year-on-year opportunity for people. we're very fortunate that, you know, the relationship we have with our public is very strong. It makes it uh, a desirable policing location. And Calgary itself has a lot to offer from a, a livable perspective. Um, you know, we people want to work in Calgary and people want to work for the Calgary Police Service. So uh, we're very fortunate in that regard. So if uh, people listening to this right now want to learn more, where can they go? Yeah, well, a good place to start will always be our recruiting website. So that's join.calgarypolice.ca. There's lots of information on there about eligibility uh, requirements, um, the online application, the testing uh, schedule, videos about each of the testing stages. So it's very, very informative. Um, absolutely, they can, uh, they can check there. And any um, subsequent questions they might have, feel free to email our recruiting um, unit at cpsrecruiting at calgarypolice.ca. Well, Constable Buck, uh, I wish you uh, success. Not too much success, by the way, here in Vancouver. <laughs> we would like to keep some of our young people as well. But I do appreciate you making time for us and all the best to you. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. That's Constable Andy Buck. He's a recruiting officer for the Calgary Police Service. Get this starting wage, $70,000. And after five years, $113,000 plus the health benefits. And if you put your 25 years in, you walk away with a pension plan uh, as well. And that's what Calgary is offering. They're very aggressive and certainly one of the top recruiting Uh, police forces in this country. Now, we've just talked about high interest rates and the challenge um, that Vancouverites are having, British Columbians are having. You know, add to that our expensive transportation challenges here uh, as well. If you uh, were young again, if you were starting your career, or maybe you are starting your career, would your advice be to young people, move to Calgary, move to Alberta, or move to other places? Call me on the open line. I want to hear from you. Uh, what advice are you giving young people uh, who want to get ahead? You know, when you, I, what frustrates me, and I moved to this city in the early 90s as a producer at CKNW, and along the way moved on to television and, and corporate career as well, and in government and back here, uh, I was fortunate. But I do worry about young people starting out today. Like, What advice would you give them when rent is $3,000 for one bedroom? What advice do you give to people when, you know, a starter home, if you're lucky, is probably 1.4, 1.5 million, uh, which is going to be very, very far away from downtown Vancouver. Call me on the open line, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. What advice would you give young people today? Go to Alberta or stay right here in Vancouver. Your call's next. Well, Vancouver appears poised to review a policy that uh, has shaped the city skyline for decades. You can love them, you can hate them, but the so-called view cones in our city have been a critical feature of Vancouver's development policy since 1989. And as I said, uh, the policy has literally shaped the city skyline. The view cones were designed to preserve ocean and mountain views from 26 specific locations in the city and have limited the size and location of new construction. 
Well, a motion will be presented tomorrow at Vancouver City Hall, uh, where uh, city staff will, would be told to conduct a review of Vancouver's view protection guidelines to determine the amount of additional housing, job space, and public benefits if various view cones were removed. Well, joining me now to talk about view cones and this new motion is Brent Tadarian. He's a city planner, urbanist at Todd Urban Works. He's a former chief planner in the city of Vancouver and now advises cities all over the world on city planning needs. Brent, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jess. Now, many have said that view cones have, have helped to shape this city, the look of the city, the skyline, and you know, helped with the broader uh, conversation around livability. Um, in your mind, as a former city planner, someone who focuses on urbanism, what role have view cones played in building this city and many others around North America? Well, when I think about how um, view corridors were first discussed back in the 1980s, there was a recognition that the downtown was going to dramatically and radically change. And recognizing that the backdrop of the back of the downtown are the mountains. We often talk about the view cones being about the water in the mountains, but really the protective view corridors are about the connection to the mountains in particular. We have something called street end views that protect the view down to the water. But it's the view corridors are about the mountains. As a backdrop, if you think about how you would frame a picture on your wall, the mountains are the backdrop, the skyline is the foreground. And there was a very strong interest in designing the downtown in a way that fits into, respects, reflects, pays some um, uh, homage to our fantastic setting. Because, you know, one of the old sayings about Vancouver was it was a setting in search of a city. I think Peter Ustinoff or somebody said that decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vancouver was a beautiful setting in search of a city. And so when we started to really radically, and this is way before my time, when we started to dramatically change and build the city, there was a feeling that said, let's not disconnect the city we're building to its setting. Let's fully connect, uh, or, or at least do our best to connect, our city to this amazing setting. And so this idea, which was my, I, as chief planner, this was my predecessor's predecessor, Ray Spaxman, who first did this. Um, the idea was to create in midair, if you look at the drawings of it, the downtown was flat, and in midair you would draw these framed views and say, as the city built up around this area, it would not touch this framed view. And it was it, some of these old drawings, these historic drawings, almost look a bit ridiculous because these things are just hovering in midair with no city around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see the picture now, and you see how the city is literally built around these lines that were drawn back in and approved by council back in 1988. So in your mind, so, they've been successful, the, the, the concept well, they, of you they've been they've been achieved. You know, the funny thing about anything that's subjective is using the word successful is going to get some people mad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whether or not they've been successful in their po- po- in, in great city building, that is certainly a subjective debate. But in terms of actually achieving the policy intent, boy, they were followed and they were adhered to. And in, and in North American city building, that is somewhat remarkable, that in the context of probably the single biggest downtown building boom in North America, Vancouver has built more of its downtown in the last few decades than just about any city in North America. It's amazing how 
uh, these lines that were drawn back in 1988 to protect views from key public places to key elements of the, the mountain range, the lions, etc., um, have been protected and adhered to. And they've been protected over dozens and dozens of projects. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the lines that was always said, when I became chief planner in 2006, uh, they, were, they had been in place for decades already. And one of the things I certainly understood is that it takes dozens of decisions to protect these view corridors. And in fact, dozens of decisions had been made to protect them. And only one decision to block them. In other words, if you, put, if you allowed even one building to block them, then those dozens of other previous decisions don't matter because the view is blocked. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of pressure to say, well, if we're going to block them, we better be really sure we know what we're doing and that's what we want to do relative to the values at play in our city building, what we consider most important, etc. So uh, it it might interest you to know that when I uh, came in as chief planner in 2006, there was tremendous pressure for me as the new guy to let exceptions happen uh, uh, into the view corridors. And rather than that, I said, let's do the review that had always been promised. When they were brought in in 1989, there was a commitment to do a 10-year review. I think it was 10 years. And that never happened. It never happened in 1999. So when I was in, uh, in the position as 2006, I said, let's do that review that was promised, and let's see if it's true what the developers and the architects are saying, which is that nobody cares about these views to the mountains. Let's have a public conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's review the nature, the value, the benefit, the amount of actual development that's actually affected by these different view corridors, and let's make a decision about do we tweak them do we throw them out? Do we keep them? Do we tweak them? Do we tweak some? Do we get rid of others? And that whole process happened in 2009, and I, we literally brought it to council the month before the 2010 Winter Olympics. We brought it in January of 2010. And there was a big surprise, because we had even recommended uh, the possibility of making strategic tweaks, adjustments that would allow more housing in the downtown. But the public outcry at the time was so largely in favor of protecting them, that the council of the day, which, I, which I'm here to tell you was predisposed to changing or even getting rid of some of them, the council of the day decided not to, and they decided at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And so, sure enough, the, the view corridors weren't changed, and actually four more were added. Uh, and I think we have uh, 26 now, 26 or 27, I think. And, and just to, I, I, uh, I think seen... it was, I thought it was 28, and then we added four for 32. But okay. uh, I, saw, I saw recently that one of the councillors was saying 26, so I might be remembering wrong. Yeah, I've but seen... it's just over 30. Yeah, so there you go. I've seen 26, 27, now you're telling me 30. And, 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 to, 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 and they do override the city's community plans. Um, that do allow for taller buildings at times. And so it does have a significant impact. Now, do you think the conversation around housing and housing crisis is enough of an argument to perhaps override some of those view cones uh, or perhaps not consider them as uh, and make them as important as they were perhaps in past uh, development decisions? Do you think this is the right way to go? Or do you think we should be doing what you said, which is, Let's go back and review the view cones and bring a policy in the context of a housing crisis uh, rather than saying we have a housing crisis, perhaps we don't need this stuff anymore. Well, I 100% agree 
with counsel when they say that if you're going to rethink the view cones, you do, in, do it in the context of a review. You don't just send the message that we might allow exceptions, because then every developer in every application will think they are the ones who gets the exception. And very soon they'll be gone completely whether you want them to be or not. The, question, the reasonable thing to do is to do, I think, what council did, which is say, or is about to do this week, which is to launch a review. I think it's important for that review, like the one in 2010, and it's 13 years later now, um, like the one in 2010, be open-minded, be um, evidence-based, be mm -hmm. analytical, not be emotional, not be reductionist and lazy. I see a lot of the debate going on, on on social media between people who just absolutely um, hate development and thus are protecting the view corridors or want absolutely no restrictions on new development and thus hate even zoning, let alone uh, view corridors. And I don't find either of those positions particularly helpful. I think that there, what there can be is a values-based discussion about as we are building our city, as thus ever it was, how do we want to build our city? What do we value in that process? What things are we preserving and protecting for the commonwealth, which is the way my predecessors used to put it? Public views like this are a part of the commonwealth that gets preserved for the larger community. But how do you weigh the importance of that, in the, which is very subjective, in the context of a very real, very quantifiable housing crisis, climate crisis, public infrastructure crisis, social equity crisis, etc.? And so. Uh, I am often saying to cities that I advise all over the world, if we are still thinking the way we were thinking 20 or 30 years ago in the face of the crises that we have, then we're not paying attention to, frankly, how much pressure there is to do things differently and better. So I am fully supportive of a review, but I want it to be a thoughtful review, an evidence-based review, and not with a pre-conclusion not with the idea that I already know what I want and I'm just going through the motions mm -hmm. to get to that result. Brent, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, great conversation, and I, and I know this is going to be an issue front and center for a little while at City Hall, that's for sure. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. The Independent Contractors and Businesses Association, or ICBA, is the country's largest construction association. Today announced the appointment of Jock Finlayson as its uh, inaugural chief economist. Now, if uh, you probably don't know many economists, uh, but if there's one economist known certainly to the business community, uh, in British Columbia, it would be Jock Finlayson. He previously served as Executive Vice President and Chief Policy Officer at the Business Council of British Columbia, and he's uh, directed the Council's work on economics and fiscal tax and environmental policy uh, as well, and uh, certainly has provided lots of advice uh, to uh, many former premiers and cabinet ministers as well. And I thought it was a good opportunity for us to catch up with him and get a sense of where he thinks the BC and economy, BC and Canadian economy are going. Jock, thank you for joining us. Us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Jazz. Uh, as ICA, ICBA's new chief economist, uh, one of your jobs, of course, is going to be looking at the broad economy across British Columbia, across Canada as well. Uh, let's start a little bit here in this province. What are you seeing? What concerns you in regards to British Columbia's economy in the tail end of 2023? Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, great question. And, uh, you know, construction really depends on the health of the larger uh, economy. Uh, it's what economists call sort of derived demand. Uh, so it depends on, you know, our, our businesses in the province 
spending to to grow and build things. Our households, uh, you know, trading up in the real estate market. Is there lots of home building and activity like that? Engineering infrastructure and public sector capital spending. So all of that really matters. And I, I would say BC is slowing um, uh, in line with the country. Um, the effects of uh, dramatic interest rate increases that uh, started um, in the spring of 2022 and have continued all the way through up until the fall of this year, uh, those, those effects are beginning to bite. Um, the cost of money has gone up considerably. The cost of capital has gone up. So that's really weighing on many uh, industries, including uh, construction. Uh, we've also got rising, you know, sort of government-imposed costs, both uh, taxes and, uh, and regulatory burdens that uh, are an additional headwind uh, for companies in a lot of industries in B.C., including uh, construction. So there's, there's lots of challenges out there. Um, I think over the medium term, the outlook is, 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 is reasonably good, but uh, for now we're, uh, we're in a bit of a crunch, that's for sure. Now, one of the things you, you've pointed out um, is that um, you've seen a significant growth of public sector employment over private sector employment. Is that still the challenge before us now? Yeah, it's a surprise uh, when we look at the data, just how dramatic the disparity is between job growth in the broadly defined public sector uh, and job growth in the public sector. And here I'm talking about payroll jobs, not not self-employment. And in BC, uh, we've actually been losing uh, private sector payroll jobs over the past 12 months or so, even as the public sector has continued to expand, you know, sort of by 4 and 5% a year in terms of payroll. Um, and if you look a little, you know, back further in time, <clears throat> what's even more surprising to me anyway is that... Uh, the number of private sector payroll jobs in the province has really not increased since 2019. So we've gone through, you know, the better part of half a decade uh, with essentially a flatlining of overall private sector job growth. Uh, the picture is different from, you know, industry to industry. That tells me we've got some problems in the business environment here. Um, I think we've got uh, governments uh, in Ottawa and Victoria that view the economy through a lens where the public sector is driving everything rather than entrepreneurs and capital markets and, uh, <clears throat> and companies and innovators out in the private sector. So I think we're kind of out of balance, out of kilter uh, on the way a lot of our decision makers look at the economy. And uh, if I was in government, I'd be quite alarmed uh, at the lack of job growth in the private sector. We've had this narrative that the you know labor market has supposedly been booming in BC, but a lot of that was just the rebound, frankly, from the COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look sort of deeper into the data in the broad private sector, there hasn't been any kind of a, a rebound. Uh, uh, look, looking across, you know, all the different industries that make up the private sector in aggregate. So, and that's different than the rest of the country. Other provinces, we, everybody has seen the public sector expand, but other provinces have done better than BC in growing private sector payroll jobs. So we do stand out as a weak performer there. Uh, how long can we sustain this then, I guess? Is, is there fiscal reckoning coming in your mind? If, I mean, you can't just have public sector uh, job growth uh, and, and, and private sector remain weak. I mean, there is a fiscal reckoning coming then, is there, is there not? Oh, well, well if, if, if this were to continue kind of indefinitely, it, it obviously isn't, isn't sustainable. At the end of the day, the the tax base, which is where most, you know, the revenues come from to pay for all the public programs and services and people working in the public sector, 
ultimately the tax base depends critically on the on the size and the vibrancy of the private sector economy um, and so we're we're not we're not in a we're not on a sustainable trajectory that's for sure mm-hmm. which is why i think it's important that policymakers acknowledge um, that we've had a very lopsided economic rebound uh, from the covid shock of 2020 and 21 and uh, we we need to be looking at kind of changes in policy that will create a more attractive environment for the private sector to expand rather than just growing government, which is kind of what we're doing right now. Well, John, congratulations on your new position as the ICBA's chief economist. Uh, um, you know, you've done a tremendous amount of work over the many, many years at the Business Council of British Columbia, well-known, of course, uh, in business circles and uh, and among elected officials as well, in regards to the great work that you do. Uh, congratulations <coughs> to you once again, and, and thank you for your time today. Yeah, good. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.